Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Well, 2016. Literally everyone died. Everyone. You. Me. We're all dead now. If you look at a lot of commentary, and if you look at a lot of people saying things about the end of the year, it seems that the past 12 months were uncommonly lethal. The conventional wisdom is, we just had one of the most aggressively anti-life years of ever. In this episode, I do not want to diminish people's grief. I do not want to dismiss people's sadness about any of the losses that we incurred in the past 12 months. I do want to, however, put it in context. I've seen a lot of things proclaiming 2016 as the year of the reaper. And in this episode, I would like to offer some alternative candidates as the most deadly years of the past century. So if we're looking at the past hundred years, there is one year that sticks out as an easy candidate for year of the reaper, for deadliest year ever. That's 1918. 1918 was, notably, the last year of World War I, and by that point, you had a good percentage of the world weary, ragged, and just tired of fighting one of the bloodiest conflicts in human history. But war was not the only killer that was stalking humanity in 1918. More than bombs or bullets, it was disease that ended up making that year especially deadly. The Spanish flu, which was not from Spain, but more on that in a moment, killed somewhere between 2 to 5% of the entire world's population in a pandemic that started in 1918, making it one of the deadliest, if not the deadliest, known pandemics ever. And 2 to 5% of the world's population may not sound like a lot, but that's between 20 to 40 million people at the time. That's more than everyone who died in the First World War. That was around 15 million. Though separating out the Spanish flu and World War I into separate phenomenon is actually kind of hard to do. They were things that were very related. It was the movement of soldiers and sailors around the world throughout the war that helped spread the disease. And despite the name, it probably wasn't from Spain. I mean, maybe it was, but we still don't really know where the Spanish flu was from. Maybe China, or maybe the United States. And I'm serious that either China or the U.S. are the two leading candidates about where this thing started, which does not really narrow it down. Spain, though, is the unlucky country that gets their name applied to this uh, rather industrious eliminator of humans. And the reason for that is that during World War I, countries, both central powers and allied powers, told local media to keep news of local outbreaks on the down low. That, after all, would be bad for morale. So in Britain, in Germany, you did not have the media reporting on what was actually going on in your country. You had them de-emphasizing the flu in their neighborhood. However, they were free to report on outbreaks in enemy countries or neutral countries. One of the most famous sufferers from Spanish flu was Alfonso XIII, the monarch of Spain at the time. He caught the flu, although he did not die from it. 
and this gave the impression in multiple countries that the flu was a Spanish phenomenon. After all, it had hit their king, even though it in fact was terrifyingly global. So compared to 1918 and the Spanish flu, 2016 has nothing. But what about runner-ups from the past hundred years? You could pick out any year from World War II. World War II is the most deadly conflict that humanity has ever had. It's not even close. After that, you could pick out almost any year from World War I. But I want to pick another year from the past hundred years as a different candidate, and that's 1971. 1971, a single year, saw one of the biggest genocides of the 20th century that no one talks about anymore. And to be honest, this completely warrants its own episode because I'm not going to do it justice here, and that is the Bengali genocide. Pakistan in Bangladesh used to be West Pakistan and East Pakistan. And in 1971, the government of what was then at the time called West Pakistan committed genocide on the people of East Pakistan, present-day Bangladesh, killing 1.5 million people in a single year. Compared to 2016, that's nothing. And again, the Bengali genocide probably needs its own episode. Zooming back even further, though, 1918, 1971, the years in two world wars, they got nothing on what is probably the single most lethal year for humanity ever, if it happened. And that was roughly 75,000 years ago. I want to tell you that what I'm about to talk about is something that's still debated by anthropologists and historians and geologists, so take it with a grain of salt. But there's a theory called the Toba Catastrophe Theory, which says that about 75,000 years ago, an Indonesian supervolcano, Toba, went off, caused global climate change, and that brought the human population down to less than 10,000 individuals. If this happened, and again, this is something scholars still debate about, that as a percentage of the population is one of the most lethal phenomenon that human beings have ever had to endure. Less than 10,000 individuals, that's nothing. That's not just killing people. That's making human beings an endangered species. So that, right there, is by far the most destructive thing that has ever happened to the species, period. And compared to that, 2016 doesn't seem that deadly at all. However, I'm not really addressing the real issue. 2016 does not seem deadly because of large-scale catastrophes like disease, like pandemics, or war, or genocide, or supervolcanoes. No, the reason that this year is frustrating and is considered a gigantic dumpster fire of death is because of so many celebrity deaths. But celebrities, even major celebrities, die every year. It is true that we have lost a lot of them in 2016, but for context, in 2015, we lost Leonard Nimoy, Terry Pratchett, Christopher Lee, Oliver Sacks, Wes Craven, and B.B. King. In 2014, we lost Philip Seymour Hoffman, Harold Ramis, Joan Rivers, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Lauren Bacall, Robin Williams, and Maya Angelou. And then going back further, in 2013, after that was over, we lived in a world without Shinoa Achebe, Roger Ebert, Seamus Heaney, Ray Harryhausen, P. 
Peter O'Toole, or Nelson Mandela. And I'm just naming the people that I'm a fan of. Countless other luminaries also died in those years that I didn't mention, and countless luminaries die every year. I suspect, but can't really prove, that if you really get into 2016's fatalities versus other years, and control for everything you need to control for, then the past 12 months would not seem all that unusual or particularly lethal. The human brain loves to find patterns where there are none, and I suspect that 2016 had celebrities dying at the same rate as other years. But grief leaves little room for such cold rationality. When death does come, it's hard, if not impossible, to not see it as something extraordinary. It's always extraordinary. Even though death is, in a way, the least surprising thing to happen to any living thing. When you think about what will happen to a living thing, you don't know how that life is going to play out. You don't know what direction it's going to go in. But there is one thing whose probability is certain. That's death. But it nearly always feels momentous, surprising, and here too soon. And there are some instances where death does not feel so cruel. For instance, when Nelson Mandela died, he was 95 years old, and he was, reportedly, surrounded by his family when he passed. Living for nearly a century, fighting and defeating apartheid, becoming president of the country that once imprisoned you, and then dying while surrounded by people who love you, is, I think, the best that any human being could hope for. When he went, there was not a sense that his life was unfulfilled or too short. But there are those other types of deaths, those that come out of seemingly nowhere, and it feels like the Reaper has shown up to a party awkwardly early and unannounced. David Bowie and Prince's deaths were both like that. Bowie was 69, which is old, but not especially elderly, and Prince was 57, which is on the older side of middle-aged and definitely not old enough to die. Both of those guys seem too young, but I don't think it was a relative youth in the face of death that was hard. After all, celebrities die young, or relatively young, all the time. No, I think what hit us especially hard is that both of those guys were symbols of the future, and I'm not talking about the literal future, as in what's going to happen tomorrow, and after that, and after that. I'm talking about the future with a capital F. The idea of a new world just around the corner, better and different than ours, a science fiction world of bright lights and synthesizers, a world populated by Martians and robots, a world just after some nebulously positive revolution, one where a purple motorbike was suddenly a perfectly rational means of conveyance. They were symbols of that kind of 20th century science fictional hope. And now they're gone. And what that reminded me of was what I talked about in episode 64, Yesterday's Tomorrows. I talked about futures that were predicted but never came to pass. Futures like Looking Backward or 2001. And there is always a sense of bitterness when you finally get to that anticipated year, that anticipated mark on the calendar that is supposed to hold so much promise. And instead of delivering a future, you just get more of the same. Or even worse, you get grief. That is what we got this year. Bowie and Prince both gave us so much hope and expectation 
for a bright, energetic, neon world, but now those are buried futures, and instead we are left with our mere banal present. That grief is not something that you can really express with numbers. That grief is not something that makes any sense when you're looking at graphs or thinking about how many people died or thinking which year was most lethal. That grief hurts in a wholly irrational but understandable way. And even though the numbers don't hold up, in that way I think it's reasonable to feel a certain sense of mourning at the end of 2016. I have been a real downer in this episode, and I've been talking about death, but I want to end on a note of hope and gratitude. Now, this podcast is going to be off for the next two weeks. Uh, We're going into winter holidays, Christmas, Hanukkah, Saturnalia, and I have friends and family, and I am going to be spending my time with them. There will be something in the feed, but it will not be a proper episode. But as we go into a time of year where we will all be meeting up with old friends, family members whom we don't see often enough, and other folks whom we've maybe forgotten throughout the year but finally see again at Christmas or Hanukkah or Saturnalia, I want to thank you folks for helping keep this podcast around. And I want to thank people like Ruth Gibbons, like Sidney Taylor. I want to thank John Kelly and Gaurung, Father of Dragons. I'm sorry I don't have his real name or her real name. I want to thank Colin Williams and everyone else who donates to the podcast on Patreon. I am astounded that people listen to this thing, and I'm also astounded and grateful that people keep it afloat. Thank you, all of you. I hope you have excellent holidays, whatever you celebrate, and I hope over the next two weeks that you celebrate, that you wash the year away, and you go into the new year, into 2017, with a sense of hope. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next year. Bye. (laughs) 